following sermon was recorded live at Foundation Church of Fredericksburg in downtown Fredericksburg, Virginia. Okay, friends, you can find your way back to your seat and open your Bible to the book of Isaiah. Specifically, Isaiah chapter 42 is where we'll begin. But you would do well to have your Bible open and with you During the course of the sermon, we'll be in several chapters. You'll see in the worship guide that we'll cover from 42 all the way to 55. Um, So make sure that your Bible is open and turn turn with us as we as we read God's Word, study it together. We'll begin in Isaiah 42. First, let us begin with prayer. Lord, we ask now that during this time of study, your spirit would so move in our hearts that we would receive your word with gladness and hear its its voice of encouragement and correction and that you would illuminate our minds to perceive the the gospel in what often can be difficult language and context. And so, Father, we, we simply ask that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, that you would increase our faith and our joy, and, Lord, that you would cause us to believe it and walk in light of it. We pray, God, for distracted, undistracted hearts, focused minds. We pray for our children as they receive their own instruction from Josh and Taylor and that their own young hearts would be open to receive the truth of the gospel as those seeds are sown. And Lord, we ask that you would now guide not only our hearts, by my own tongue to lead us to worship you. We pray as always in Jesus' name. Amen. I have two aims for the sermon this morning. You could argue, as you probably should, that these two aims are the same for every sermon that would be preached in the church. One aim is an expositional aim. That is, I want to show from the text of Isaiah, how Jesus fulfills the portrait of the servant of the Lord. God raises up a servant who accomplishes and fulfills God's purposes, and I want to show you, and I want you to believe that that's Jesus. But we can't simply know what the Bible says and believe that that's true But it must lead us onto something more, and that's my second aim this morning, not simply expositional, but doxological. That is, I want you to worship Jesus as the fulfillment of what Isaiah speaks of this morning. Now, that I know that seems sort of trite and obvious that we should come to worship Jesus from scriptures, but I fear that 
that connection between exposition and doxology usually falls flat, and I share in that blame. If we're not careful, we can learn more about the Bible, how to read it and understand it and its theology, which is good and rich and life-giving, without moving fully to worship the God of the Bible and to fully believe with real faith of the gospel that the Bible talks about. And what better time than a season like Advent to really focus on worshiping Jesus as a fulfillment of what Isaiah here says. So as you read and listen, pray silently that God would sow these seeds of faith deeply into your heart that would bear fruit of joy and belief and worship so that Jesus is magnified and exalted. That we're not here to greet one another and congratulate one another for the good work that we've done this past week or the accomplishments that we've been able to perform or the words that we can say to pass off that we've been pretty Christian. But rather, with hearts overflowing for love for Christ, we are here to worship and celebrate Jesus together. It's Christmas, after all, and Jesus is the reason for the season, as they say. And though we may roll our eyes at such a statement, this is our call and our task every week as we study God's Word to see how God uniquely displays Jesus in His Word and how He sovereignly sows faith in Jesus in our hearts through this Word. So pray silently as you read and listen this morning for God to do just that. Now, God's purpose in the world is, as you may guess, to glorify himself. God has created the world and all that is in it so that all the world and all that is in it may worship and glorify God. The great confessions of our faith will ask the question, what is the chief end of man? And the answer is to glorify God and enjoy for him forever. That scriptural language that teaches us that God created the world, that those who see God in the world through his creative power, his invisible attributes, as Romans 1 teaches us, would come to glorify him and give praise and honor to him, and extol him and his son Christ. His purpose for the world is to glorify himself, and particularly to glorify himself through the joy and the satisfaction of his people. That is what John Piper was most famous for saying. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. That is, when our hearts are so overflowing with gratitude and love and affection for God, then he is most glorified in us. So the Bible equips us to see God as the, the meter of expectations, as the fulfillment of our longings and our affections. It wants us to be satisfied with God so that God would then be glorified in us. But you know, if you're a student of the Bible, 
or you've been around church for some time, that we do not worship God. And we are often not satisfied with God. In fact, in Genesis chapter 3, that relationship that mankind had with the Lord, perfect, upright, and righteous, fell from grace. Sin entered the world, and with sin, death, and rebellion against God is now the norm for our hearts. It's the default. We come into this world rebellious in our hearts to the Lord, even as infants. As David would say in the Psalms, we are conceived in iniquity. And so we are sinners by birth and by nature. We've inherited a sinful nature from our father, Adam. And we willfully walk in darkness, following the prince of the power of the air, under the sway of the evil one. And so because of the fall of man from grace and into sin and death, the people that must glorify God now first must be reconciled to him if God is to be glorified in our worship. So the issue is we cannot worship God. Now God will be glorified in mankind no matter our outcome, either in our destruction or in our salvation. But in order to worship God and give praise to God as our creator, that praise and worship that he is due, we must first be reconciled to God because sin has created a fissure and a gap in our relationship with the Lord. So before man can glorify God, he must first be redeemed by God. That's the plight of all of mankind. And so God then has a purpose, as he has always had a purpose, to redeem and bless the world. In fact, he makes this promise explicit to Abraham in Genesis 12. And he reiterates that promise in 15 and 17 and his promises to his people over and over again that he will redeem and rescue his people and especially to Abraham that he would cause him to be a father of many so that through Abraham and his people they might bless the world. That through the offspring of Abraham all the world would be blessed. And so if God's purposes to redeem a people and to save a people, to bless the world so that in his people he would be glorified through their praise and satisfaction. This requires a servant who is faithful to fulfill the mission of God. And this is the servant we read of in Isaiah 42 through 55. We'll begin in verse 1 of 42. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen servant in whom my soul delights. And I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it, and whose spirit those who walk in it, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, 
a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. For I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Isaiah records this prophecy of a servant of the Lord who is to fulfill the mission of God. This chosen servant in Isaiah's text, we understand to be the people of Israel. In the context of Isaiah, he speaks of God's people as God's servant. It is Israel's job to serve the Lord. They are to be a light to the nations. They are to administer justice in their dealings, not only with others, but throughout their dealings with other nations. They have been given God's presence, and God's Spirit guides them and leads them. Many men have been called to this task, but all will eventually fail. Adam failed, Moses failed, David failed, the prophet will fail, and even Israel, as in the context of our current passage, Israel would fail to be a faithful servant of the Lord. We notice the qualification of the servant is firstly to be empowered by the Spirit. This is so dependent upon the leading of the Lord that wherever the Lord points, the servant walks. However the Lord leads, the servant follows. However the servant, however the Lord teaches, the servant believes. He is also to bring forth justice. He is to administer justice. From a national standpoint, the king is to be one who, who sees justice done among them who pursues justice, ensures that it's seen. Of course, Israel is to be a light for the nation. The servant of the Lord is to stand, it says, as a covenant, a testimony, a signpost for the rest of the nation of God's faithfulness to his people, and indeed a calling card that those who would trust in the Lord would come to know him and be blessed by him. So God's purpose to redeem and bless the world and to glorify himself through the midst of his people and their joy and satisfaction requires a faithful servant to fulfill that mission because of sin and death and enmity and strife with the Lord. And so the servant's goal, we see, is actually to reverse the reality that Israel finds itself in now. Imprisonment or exile, darkness, it says, to reverse the reality of those things with spiritual renewal and spiritual transformation. That is, the servant of the Lord will come to his people and renew them and redeem them by God's Spirit so that they are no longer in prison or in exile or in darkness, but because of the light that the servant of the Lord sheds and shines upon his people, they are freely transformed by God's grace. They are brought in to the covenant of God in relationship. That's the servant's goal. To reverse the reality of the imprisonment we find ourselves in, of the darkness we sit in. This, as we have stated, is man's natural condition. Our mind and our hearts are darkened. We love sin. We follow and chase after sin we have lusts and passions and desires that lead us not to God, but to idols, often to ourselves. And we worship those idols, and we worship ourselves, and we do not worship God. 
our natural inclination is to love the thing God hates and to hate the thing God's love, God loves. This is man's natural condition. And because of this condition, we are unable then to free ourselves. And so the Lord says a servant must come to free us from the imprisonment and the darkness we see ourselves in. We cannot cause ourselves to see if we are blind. We must be made to see. We must be given sight. In fact, Israel in chapter 42, verses 19 through 20, though is a servant of the Lord, is a blind one. Who is blind but my servant, God says? Or deaf as my messenger whom I send? Who is blind as my dedicated one or blind as a servant of the Lord? He sees many things, but he does not observe them. His ears are open, but he does not hear. Israel was blind and deaf to God's word and God's ways. And friends, you and I are also blind and deaf to God's word and way. We came into this world not simply indifferent to God, but hostile to him. Yes, he gives us life and breath, and God's common grace is given to all across the world, both the just and the unjust, the righteous and the unrighteous, but all of us are born in iniquity. We cannot save ourselves, cause ourselves to see, or open the deafness of our ears. And so the servant of the Lord will succeed when all else have failed. The servant of the Lord makes right what Adam could not do. He leads and delivers perfectly like Moses. He rules perfectly and just, justly like David. He speaks for God like all the prophets. And he serves the Lord faithfully like Israel should have but neglected to do. So the servant of the Lord succeeds where we fail. In chapter 49, then, we see the servant speak. He tells of his, of his own mission that's been given to him by the Lord. Chapter 49, we'll read the first 13 verses. Here the servant says, Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he named my name. He gave my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. He said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I have labored in vain, and I have spent my strength for nothing in vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord, and my recompense with my God. And now the Lord says, he who formed me from the womb to be a servant, to bring back Jacob to him, that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. And thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and His Holy One, to the one deeply despised and abhorred by the nation, the servant of His rulers, Kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, who has chosen you. 
Thus says the Lord, in a time of favor, I have answered you. In a day of salvation, I have helped you. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people to establish the land, to apportion the desolate heritages, saying to the prisoners, come out. To those who are in darkness, appear. And they shall feed along the ways. On all bare heights shall there be pasture. There shall not hunger or thirst, neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them. For he who has pity on them will lead them, and by springs of water will guide them. And I will make all my mountains a road, and my highway shall be raised up. Behold, these shall come from afar, and behold, these shall come from the north and from the west, and these shall come from the land of seen. Sing for joy, O heavens, and exult, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing. For the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. See, the servant of the Lord now speaks and he says, God has raised me up that I might come and comfort the people who are in darkness. You, Israel, find yourself imprisoned under darkness. All the nations find themselves under the cloak of darkness. But the servant has been raised up to call to himself and to the Lord, his people, because Israel is unable to fulfill its task as a light to the nation, God raises up this servant, this suffering servant, who emerges from within Israel to carry out God's mission, his mission of justice and restoration. There are two great encouragements and promises just from this truth. Firstly, God does not abandon his purposes. Though he has set his expectation and purposes on Israel, though Israel failed, God does not. He does not abandon his purposes. His purpose to redeem and rescue the world will go on unhindered. His purposes to glorify himself through the joy and the satisfaction of his people will go forth unhindered. He does not abandon his purposes, though his people have abandoned him. Though it seems like in our life, God's purposes are going unfulfilled. His promises and his word to us that we should have joy, satisfaction, that we would grow in patience and love. These things seem not to happen often because our view of things is too small or too finite, but God does not abandon his purposes and in his purposes he continues to work in our lives. The fact that he will raise up a servant after many failed and promises through this servant to do what none have been able to do. It's a promise and encouragement, encouragement to us that he does not abandon his purposes. Secondly, God does not abandon his people. He has not turned his back on his covenant people. He has not turned away from his promises to those whom he has made covenant. He is for his people. His purposes still stand, and his people are still near to his heart. The whole role of the servant is to draw again his people to himself. In verse 5, it says, The Lord who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring back Jacob to him, that Israel might be gathered to him, says that he will make him as a light to the nations, in verse 6, that my salvation will reach to the end of the earth. See, this servant of the Lord was raised up by God to fulfill his purposes is centered on the promises made to God's people that he would be their God, and he would be their, they would be his people. So God does not abandon his purposes, nor does he abandon his people. 
Let's note next in how this mission is accomplished. This mission to be empowered by the Spirit to bring forth justice and the light to, his, to the nations. To not abandon purposes, but to fulfill the will of the Lord. And draw his people back to himself. How is this accomplished? Turn to chapter 50. We notice from this chapter that the mission is accomplished through the obedient faithfulness of this servant. In fact, we see two aspects of the ministry, his prophetic ministry and his priestly service. So in 50 verse 4, the Lord has given me, this is the servant speaking again, the tongue of those who are taught that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Because those who are in exile are weary, wondering, believing the promises of God, weary, desperate to hear God's word come, the servant will teach what God's word says. God will come in the flesh that he might give to those who are weary a comforting word. And they will be sustained by this word, it says. The prophetic ministry of this servant is that it speaks for God. It comforts God's people with God's word. It draws God's people near to God's heart through God's word. Let this be an encouragement to us that whenever we feel far from the Lord or discouraged because we don't see the promise of the Lord unfold for us on our timeline or the way that we anticipate it, that we can return to the word that he has given us and receive comfort that we are sustained by the word that the servant of the Lord speaks to us, preserved for us in our Bibles. This is God's ministry through his word. In the next two couple verses, verses five through nine, we see his priestly service as well. The Lord God has opened my ear and I was not rebellious. I turned not backwards. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheek to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting, but the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. So he who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment, and the moth will eat them up. See, the priestly service of this servant means that he will achieve God's mission through service to God's people by suffering. In fact, the, the very fact that he proclaims God's word is the reason he is suffering. Because he speaks justly. Because he calls out the false believers and idols because he uses God's words to instruct, correct, rebuke, and comfort those who would be held down. He seeks to liberate those in bondage and illuminate for those who are in darkness. He will suffer, but his service is through suffering. He achieves God's mission through his suffering. Notice he does this confidently, resolved, when he says in verse 7, he will not be disgraced. And so he has set his face like a flint. This is a hard stone. They use flint to, to sharpen axe and other stones so that it may be unmoving. 
It would be firm. He has set his face like flint, resolved to suffer for the sake of God's people because he is the faithful and obedient servant of the Lord. He's confidently resolved because he knows ultimately that he will be vindicated and even exalted. The Lord, he says, will help me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. I know, it says, I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. So who is there to contend? Who is the adversary? Who can call him guilty? That all will be worn out. The Lord vindicates. The Lord exalts his servant as he resolves himself confidently. This means that he's dedicated to God's purposes, the servant of the Lord. He's dedicated to the purposes and the plan to redeem God's people even at the expense of his own life. He says, though he turned not his back, he gave it to those who would strike, to the cheeks, to those who would pull out the beard. He did not hide his face from disgrace and from spitting. He was ridiculed, beaten, and ultimately will be killed for his dedication to God's purposes of redemption. This is the high calling of the servant of the Lord. No wonder so many men failed to meet this task. How many of us are resolved to go and die for the Lord? If we can say so today, it is only because we know one who has died for us and what awaits us on the other side. But the servant of the Lord does so because he trusted confidently in God's vindication. So he dedicates himself to his purposes of redemption. Friends, what a demonstration of the love of God this is to us that he would send his servant to purchase for us peace at the price of his death. And when we realize that Jesus, the Son of God, is this servant, how much greater is the display of God's love for us that he would send his very own, that he would become for us what we most desperately need, taken on the form of a servant. Paul says in Philippians 2 that Jesus suffered death on a cross obediently. And Hebrews tells us that for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising its shame. He does this as a demonstration of God's love, commitment, dedication and eternal covenant of redemption with his people. So it's accomplished ultimately through the obedient faithfulness of the servant who lays down his life for the sake of God's people. Turn now to chapter 52. And notice with me that the servant's obedient suffering then is actually the fulfillment of God's purposes of atonement. In fact, this is how God has always planned to redeem his people through the suffering of his servant. He redeems and atones for the sins of his wicked people through the suffering of his perfect servant. In verse 13 of chapter 52, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind, so shall he sprinkle, that is, with his blood, many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him, for that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. 
Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As one from whom men would hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions and he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked, and with a rich man in his death. And although he had, had, he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. And when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days and the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered among the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Well, we know from Isaiah 53 that this is what is most quoted in the New Testament. This is, of course, a picture of Jesus' own death and suffering for us. In fact, it's often difficult for us to believe that nearly 700 years before the birth of Jesus, such detail would be listed about how this one servant would suffer and atone for sins, and yet it's here in the text, and it's fulfilled exactly in Jesus' life. But if we consider the servant of the Lord who suffers in order that God may atone, we notice, firstly, that the servant's life and death is vicarious, that is, it is for us and through his life and death we receive the blessings and the benefits of it. His life was perfect, obedient to the Father. In all things, he submitted himself to God in his word and his will. And even in his death, he perfectly obeyed God. And so the benefits of Christ's life and the benefits of Christ's death are given to us who are united to him by faith. This means that the servant lays down his life, it bears our sins. Your sins and my sins were put on Jesus on the cross. This servant who is numbered among the transgressors, he says he makes intercession and he bears the transgressions and the iniquity of us all. He is, as John would say, a propitiation. That is, he takes the wrath of God, diverts it from us by placing it on himself. He satisfies God's wrath against sin. Because we have rebelled against him, God rightly is to seek justice and often means condemnation against sin. But Christ receives the wrath of God, is condemned on the cross, 
so that we may not be condemned. It's through his life and it's through his death we receive the blessings and the benefits of his righteousness and his perfect obedience. Notice in verse 15, we are sprinkled with his blood and made pure of chapter 52, that is. All those who would come to him are sprinkled by the blood. This draws on the Old Testament picture of purification who would come into the con- contact with the Holy of Holies. In chapter 53, verse 10, we see that his soul makes an offering for guilt. It restores righteousness to those who are guilty before the Lord because his own soul is poured out for the guilt of others. Ultimately, the blessing we receive from this is peace there in verse 5 of chapter 53. He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. The blessing and the privilege of Christ's sacrifice and atonement, vicarious life and death, is not only that we are purified, but that we are healed and made peace with God. In fact, this is what Paul says in Romans chapter 5. If you've been justified, you have peace with God through Jesus Christ. Well, we turn in chapter 54, we see further blessings in the beneficiaries of, of the servant's faithfulness here. Beginning in verse 2, enlarge the place of your tent the Lord says, and let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes, for you will spread abroad to the right and to the left, and your offspring will possess the nations and will people and will people the desolate cities. This is the promise that once God has purified and made a people for himself whole and righteous again through the vicarious life and death of this servant, they will go forth and reach the nations. Redemption is secured by the suffering servants, and this redemption will go to the nations. See, God's plan, you see, is being fulfilled through the death of that servant to bless the world as those who have received the righteousness of this servant go forth and proclaim the good news. They will go to the right and to the left. Their tents would be enlarged, this language of expanding the territory of God's people as it goes all throughout the world. We will people the desolate cities, even in the dark and hardest places to reach. God's people will be there to tell of the suffering servant of his life and death. Last we look at verse 55, or chapter 55, the first three verses. What comes from the servant's death is a community that is formed who continues to shine the light of God's redemptive purposes and plans realized in Jesus. Come, it says, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy, and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for which that does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good. Delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me that your soul may live and I will make with you an everlasting covenant. My steadfast love 
with sure love for David. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and a commander for the peoples. And you shall call a nation that you do not know. A nation that did not know you shall run to you because the Lord your God and the Holy One of Israel has glorified you. What happens is because of the servant's suffering, his faithfulness, his vicarious life and death, this community is formed by all those who now take up this free offer of reconciliation. Those who are drawn near to God because of the servant's ministry now receive the same spirit that empowered him to go forth through the nations and shine the light that Jesus Christ has come. We continue to tell of God's redemptive purposes and plans that have been fulfilled in Christ. We can point to the death and the life of Jesus as the blessing and the redemption for all those who would trust in his work, that he is the Son of God. As we read from Romans 10, that all those who believe that Jesus Christ rose from the dead and confess with their mouth that he is God will be saved. For all those who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And so the invitation is to come, to be part of this new community, this new covenant people of God, where he blesses and lavishly loves and cares for his people. You have no money, you don't need it. You have nothing to show for your labors, you don't need it. God will supply everything you need. Come and buy without money and without price. Come and receive and eat what it will satisfy. Delight yourselves in the new covenant riches and blessings of the Lord. What does Paul tell us in Ephesians? That we have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Peter tells us of this inheritance that we have, that we share in with all the saints that's being kept for us in heaven, imperishable and undefiled. We have the riches of the love and mercy of God as new covenant members of Christ's people. So the invitation to you this morning, whether you've been near to Christ or have been far off, is to come again if you thirst or if you're hungry. Come and drink. Come and eat. Come and buy. Come and be satisfied and delight yourselves in the richness of God's grace and see that Christ is the suffering servant who has come for you to draw you and restore you to God through his very suffering. Through his life and his death, he has provided for you the means by which you are counted righteous before God. And so what's required of you is simply to believe. It's simply to turn to Christ and accept this free offer of grace that he gives to you in his own death. There's no trick. There's no work. There's no bait and switch. For the Christian, this is good news because we remember that the light who came into the world shines today and that we carry that same light into the world as we go forth into the nations, as we pray for those in our own backyard, as we love and serve our neighbors, as we submit ourselves to one another. But for those who are far off, who feel abandoned by God, who do not know the light that has come into the world, this is even greater news because it means your sins are forgiven if you turn to Christ. I don't know where you are, how long you've come to church, and what your profession may be, but you can trust 
in the vicarious life and death of Jesus to forgive you of your sins if you look to it as true for you, if you know that God sent his son, if you believe and confess that he has risen from the dead and that you turn away from your sin and you come to Christ hungry and ready to be satisfied. This is the doxology that I mentioned. This is the good news we should be grateful for. There are many ways we can apply this in our lives as missionaries and as witnesses of the world, but at the very root of our lives need to be gratitude and thankfulness for this truth, that Jesus is the servant of the Lord who has laid down his life, and in his death you receive life. That he went into darkness, that he may redeem those in darkness. And he put himself in prison, that he might receive relief those who were in prison. He shed his blood that we might be sprinkled with it. And he offered his own soul as an offering for guilt that we might be pardoned from ours. That's the good news of the gospel. So may you believe it this morning. Let's pray. Father, we are, I trust and I, and I hope in all of the, the servant that has come into this world, we know to be Christ. And we are so grateful, Lord, as recipients of the grace that we've received as people that have been called and drawn near to you through this servant and the ministry of this servant. And as other faithful Christians have gone into the world to proclaim the gospel and the dawning of this light, we who have heard it and believed it, received it with gladness by your grace, you're now numbered among the people for whom Christ died. Lord, we are this new people. We are the covenant people of God. We are your people. And you have shown your steadfast faithfulness to us through the work of your servant, Jesus, who has reconciled us to you through his own death. So we celebrate that. Though it means ultimately that his coming which we celebrate this month, leads to his death. But at the end of all this, God, there is much cause for rejoicing. For you have raised us up. You've seated us on high with you. And we extol the name of Jesus as our Redeemer, who has served us in his life and death and now even serves us in his intercession. May we continue to walk humbly in light of this truth, grateful for all that he has done and continues to do. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All sermons are released under a Creative Commons, non-commercial, no derivative 3.0 license. If you would like to learn more or listen to past sermons, please visit us at foundationfxbg.com.